Welcome to the official podcast of the Entrepreneur Summit. These are events that teach you strategies from the experts, lessons learned from the trenches, and connections to take your business to the next level. Welcome to another episode of season three of the Entrepreneur Summit podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Smith, and we are so excited to be back for our third year. Once again, we'll be in Frisco, Texas, and this year we are moving to a two-day event on June 18th and 19th. Now, what's unique about this is you can come for one day or you can come for two days, however you'd like to buy your ticket. We have a one-day option, a two-day option, and a VIP option that gets you into the VIP happy hour in addition to the two-day event. So you can see our entire lineup, get your tickets, use code GUEST, G-U-E-S-T, for 20% off all over at eSummitEvents.com, eSummitEvents.com. Before we get into this episode, I want to first thank our sponsors. First, we have IKEA, and IKEA in Frisco is right next to our venue over at the uh, convention center in Frisco, and they are, it's a beautiful facility. They're all about helping business owners with their spaces. So whether you are a solo person with your uh, home office, they will help you redesign that entire thing. Or if you've got an office building that you need some help with with design, utilize their design center because I'm telling you, they are amazing. So check them out. Of course, ikea.com and then specifically to the Frisco one just off 121 and the tollway. We also are welcoming once again for the third year in a row, the Frisco EDC. Frisco is a suburb of Dallas, if you don't know about it, and is literally one of the fastest growing cities in America and has has just been voted the best place to start a small business. So it kind of worked out perfectly that we uh, launched our Entrepreneur Summit here and we continue to be here. So the Frisco Economic Development Center is an incredible organization bringing great companies here to Frisco. If you're thinking about starting a business, if you've got a business, you need a great place to build it. I'm telling you, I'm not sure there's a better place to do that than Frisco, Texas. Our other sponsor we want to thank is Salesforce. Salesforce has an incredible suite of products for small businesses. They'll be at this year's summit in addition to helping business owners learn how to utilize some of these amazing tools to streamline, set some processes in, save some time, save some money. They'll be here to help you do just that. So check them out over at salesforce.com. And again, you'll be able to meet them on June 18th and 19th at the summit. So go get your tickets now. Hurry up. EastSummitEvents.com. Again, use code guest. And uh, here is our next episode of the podcast. All right, welcome to the official start of season three of the Entrepreneur Summit podcast. I'm so happy you are here and excited to feature some pretty amazing speakers this year. We officially moved into a two-day event. We've got over 30 speakers in over 25 sessions, all focused on helping you grow your business. And what I wanted to do today was release the episode or the interview that we had or that I had with Robert Hershevik last year. And the reason why I wanted to do this was because this is, I'm telling you, a wealth of information. And this is exactly why I wanted to do three fireside chats this year versus just one, because there's just nothing like this inside look into what these CEOs do, how they think, what keeps them up at night, all of that. And uh, 
I'm just so excited to share this interview with you. It's an hour. There is amazing stuff throughout the entire hour. I even have the Q&A session with our audience from last year too. So this is going to give you a taste of what you can expect. Like I said, we've got three CEO Fireside Chats this year. So uh, it's going to be even more on June 19th. Now, forewarning, we had a little bit of audio issues at the beginning. And so stick with it. There's going to be, it's kind of a little soft at first, but then we, uh, it all just in a few minutes in, it'll go to regular sound, but I just want to give you that forewarning, um, had a little bit of sound issues at first, but we got those figured out. So as always, thank you so much for listening. And here is my interview with Robert Hershevik. So I want to start at the beginning though, because you have a very interesting start. You came here from, um, Yugoslavia, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, or Croatia. Well, I should know this. I'm like blanking Same right country. Now. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Well, and I know your father went from he was a manager over there, right, and came and then had to sweep factory floors, and you had a very humble beginning in Canada. How did that shape your business drive, and then even how you run your businesses today? Yeah. So um, you're right. So I grew up in a country called uh, Yugoslavia, which was a communist country. And then it became Croatia after the war. And so, you know, my dad had a, the basis of communism is that we're all equal, which really sounds great. And I don't have a problem with that, neither my dad. My dad had a problem with the fact that if he wanted to work harder and get ahead, that he wasn't allowed to do that. So in communism, nobody had a better apartment or a better car. You know, the hottest car in Yugoslavia was something called the Yugo, and you couldn't advance in life. And that really bothered him. And he was the youngest of 15. And he, so get this, he was the youngest of 15, and his father died, my grandfather died, while my grandmother was carrying him in the womb. He got run over by a train. And he was the only one who didn't join the Communist Party. One of his uncles was like the mayor, one was the head of the police. And so he was the toughest guy in the world. And then he'd go to bars and he'd say bad things about communism. And in a communist country, when you say bad things about communism, they throw you in jail. And you know, most people would get the cause and effect. Oh, I shouldn't do that again. My dad was like, screw them! And he did it again, they did it again, they did it. He was in jail 22 times. And then finally they said, if you come back, you will never come back. Because they have these jails where you disappear and stuff. So we grabbed my mom and I and we went to Italy with one suitcase and we came to Canada on a boat. Not that my life isn't melodramatic enough, the name of the boat was the Cristofero Colombo. <laughs> Right? So we land in Canada, we have enough money to take the train from Halifax to Toronto. My mom remembered she knew somebody and we lived in their basement for two years. So that, that's kind of how we started. And I think it's a typical immigrant story. I'm not an immigrant, I'm actually a guy off the boat, literally. And I think what that does for you, it does one of two things. I think it makes you accept your faith in life or it says I don't really want to live like this. Somebody sacrificed everything in their life for me. 
You know, people always say you come to another country for a better life. The reality is, my dad's life really wasn't that much better. He had no family, he had no friends, he was 37 years old, and he showed up in a country where people didn't like him, they made fun of him, and he never really got the language. You know, it's funny, my dad always thought he spoke great English, and he would talk like this, and I'd be like, what are you saying? <laughs> He's like, what are you talking about? I speak great. And that was really hard, and I think that always shaped me uh, in the sense of a greater purpose and not making excuses. So when you started your first business, I think a lot of people, what holds them back is they don't know what they're doing, they've never run a business. When you started your first one, can you describe like what made you start it and where you felt you were as a business Yeah, so the, so the downside of being an immigrant yeah. is you tend to be too conservative. Okay. Yeah, yeah you know, yeah. when you're an immigrant, you have nothing. Every dollar, every piece of bread is so precious that you don't wake up in the morning and say, how do I get more bread? You wake up in the morning and you say, gosh, I hope this doesn't go away. Like you, you tend to protect your downside as opposed to thinking about the upside. And that's one of the downsides of being an immigrant. So I never really wanted to start my own business. I just wanted to have a, my dream in life was to um, make a thousand dollars for my age. So if, by the time I was 50, I wanted to make 50 grand a year. And one day have a nice house that I could pay off and buy a used Corvette. That was like, that was like, if you asked me in my teens and twenties, that was a home run. And one time I remember I was thinking about starting a business and my mom said to me, no, don't worry, you're going to get a job, right? Because yeah. as an immigrant, you didn't start a business, you got a good job. Right. And so the only reason I started my business was because a guy fired me and I couldn't get a job in time to make the mortgage payment on the house. Oh, and so I'm like, oh my God, I have a mortgage payment coming up. What am I going to do? And I said, oh, I should try to sell this stuff. So I sold this computer stuff, talked people into buying it, and they bought it. And I was like, oh, this is really cool. <laughs> and then I did it again, but I still ended up getting a job. So I actually got a job, worked at the job for three months, and ran the business. And then when I'm like, okay, this is nuts. But it's fear. Immigrants have an innate sense of fear because that's our background. Like, think how unsettling it is at 37 to lose everything and have to start over again. And when that's your background, it's really hard. So Mark Cuban, who's on our show, and I always, you know, we hang out at lunch. And so Mark says to me, you know, when I was 12 years old, I knew I wanted to be rich because that was his background, right? He, he wasn't poor. He just wanted to be rich. When I was 12 years old, I just didn't want to be poor. Like I didn't think of, I want to buy a basketball team one day and I wanted to have a private jet. I was just like, I just don't want to be poor. Yeah. And so I think there's a great balance between those two things. When you were growing, <clears throat> excuse me, when you were growing your business, I, you know, I always 
kind of talk about the leap of faith times, right? You, it's tough, right? It's There's tough. that moment when you're like, ah, well, and maybe you've had success, right? And maybe you're doing well, but then it's the leap of faith that you have to make a bigger decision or move right. into another direction to that scale. Can you talk about, and it, the path probably is there, but you got to go more intuition than, you know, than anything else. Have you had a moment when growing where you were like, okay, I've got to make this big decision. I've got to go. It, maybe it wasn't all laid out for you, but you knew you had to take that chance to get to that next level. You know, every, every day I wake up, I have to take that leap of faith. And as your company gets bigger, that never really changes. Mm -hmm. What changes is like this year, we'll spend more money. I'll spend more money to run the business this year than our sales were three years ago. Wow. And so people say to me, oh, it must be great. You're doing 200 million a year now. It must be so easy. I'm like, what the F are you talking about? <laughs> like I wake up in the morning and I think, oh my God, our payroll alone is more than my sales were five years ago. That freaks me out. Does it still freak you out? It freaks me out. It freaks really? me out every day. And, you know, so it's, it's, it's taking those leaps of faith, but I think what's different is most small business owners don't, treat the business like a business. I think that, you know, because I meet a lot of small business owners on the show and we bought a number of, you know, in our growth path, we've bought nine companies in order to get here. And so I've gotten pretty good at meeting a small business owner and kind of feeling, yeah, these people are going to make it or they're not going to make it. And, and the one overriding factor is not so much intuition or, or the leap of faith is treating the business like a living, breathing thing. You know, a small business is an extension of the owner. Mm -hmm. Show me a small business in trouble, and I'll show you a owner who's in trouble. Show me a disciplined owner, and I'll typically show you a well-run business. Sometimes you're just in the wrong field or external factors happen, but it's, it's understanding what the business needs and the fact that it is a business. I run a business. Most of my competitors, if I went to them and said, hey, wh what do you guys do? They would say, oh, we're in, the, we're in technology, or we're in pet food, or we're in distribution. Before you're in any of those things, you're in business, full stop. And to run a business, you have to understand numbers. You have to understand marketing. You have to understand how to acquire a customer. Then it comes, what do you do? And, and I know that seems like a really subtle no. distinction, but it's not, you're, to be in business, first be in business. Secondly, be great at something that draws customers in. Did you learn to do that? Like when you started, obviously we all, mm. you know, I know for me, I didn't know marketing at all. When I started my first business, I had to do my research. So how did you become that person to be that strategic? Or do you think it was? Yeah, I, I, I think, you know, I wish I was smarter. <laughs> I'd probably be as rich as Mark one day. Um, I, I never had the opportunity to learn. So I don't have an MBA. Uh, I went to school when I was in high school, I wouldn't have enough money to go to university. So I go to my mom and I'm like, well, how am I going to pay for university? She goes, that's a great question. You should figure that out. 
I'm like, okay. And so I go to school and they run an accounting contest. And so whoever got the highest score in the accounting contest for the entire province, because I'm Canadian, got like $5,000. So I write this contest and I win. And I know, and, and so I go to university to study business. Six months in, I'm like, oh my God, business is so boring. So I quit university. So I go home. My dad comes home one day, says, what you do home? I said, oh, you know, university, it's not for me. I'm going to go get a real job. And my dad wasn't a real lovey-feely kind of guy. And so he comes up to me, like right up to me, and he says, listen, I love you. You go back to school or I kill you, bury body in backyard. <laughs> and, and I think he really meant it. I was, the, I was the first person in my entire family, in my mom's side, my dad's side, to ever go to university. So then I go, what am I going to study? So I got a degree in classical English literature. And the reason I did that is because one of my girlfriends, I'm like, oh my God, what am I going to study? My dad's going to kill me. And I go, hey, how come you're never in class? She goes, well, I take classical English literature. (laughs) I'm like, well, how does that work? She goes, you get a book on Monday, 800 pages, you read it, and you show up on Friday, and you talk about it. I'm like, what? <laughs> and so that's my degree. And so I, I, I never understood why stuff happened until it happened to me. And so I'm, I'm always the guy that looks at the stove and says, which of the rings is hot? And then puts his hand on each one okay. and gets burned. But I rarely get burned twice. And so I, th- I think the quality I've always had is I don't have a very big ego and I'm really geared towards success regardless of whose idea it was. I've never had an arrogance about being right. I'd rather be rich and successful than be right. I've never cared about that. And so I think whenever I've done stuff wrong, I've always kind of looked at and said, wow, I shouldn't have put my hand on the stove. That really hurt. How do I not do it again? And so I've learned over time. And as your business gets bigger, you've got to react faster. So it's funny, the five of us on Shark Tank all sit around at lunch and talk about stuff like this because we're really bored. (laughs) And we all said, what is the one quality that all five of us if you dropped us off in the middle of the jungle, we're all confident we would survive. So what do you think it is? What's the one quality that you think we all think we have that would make us survive? Drive. We're all driven, absolutely. It's adaptability. You know, the world will not be won by the weak or the strong. The world will be won by the people that can adapt. There's a lot of dinosaurs that were very large and could kill the crap out of birds and other little things, but there's no dinosaurs around anymore. It's evolution. It's the ability to adapt. You know, life is about change and constant change. So if you don't like change, don't start a business. Like if if you want stability and you want every day to look like it looked yesterday, don't start a business. Because you know what business is? Business, the best analogy I've ever had about 
starting or running a business is that game whack-a-mole. Yeah. Right? It's true. You know, the minute you think you got it figured out and you, you hit the one gopher, I guarantee you, I'm, I guarantee you when I get off the stage and go back and check my email, something's gone wrong at work. And it's not what I thought it was going to be. It's going to be an HR issue or a finance. Like, that's business. It's a, it's a constant dynamicism. And if you're not excited by that, and if your attitude isn't bring it on, you're, you're, you're going to fail. Full stop. So that, that's when we think about ourselves and how great we are, that, that's what we think. It's a great analogy. The burned part. Like, think, Can you think of a story where or a time in, in your businesses where you, you know, a mistake you made that you were, could have even been a really crucial mistake that you had to go back and course correct? Yeah, so I used to be incredibly trusting mm-hmm. of every employee because I am a great judge of character. You know, there's, gosh, no one's going to pull the wool over my eyes. I've gone through hell. And so I'm starting a business, and I think we have some like 30 employees, and I love my employees, and I still do. Don't take the story the wrong way. I love the people on my team. And so we're running this 30 employees, and our marketing lady quits. And she goes, oh, I want to take you out for lunch. I really loved working here. I have this great opportunity. I'm like, you got to go for it. So she takes me out for lunch. She starts crying. And I'm like, Wow you really loved working with me. She's like, no, that's not why I'm crying. She goes, I feel so bad for you. I don't know if I should tell you. I'm like, what do you mean? She goes, well, Bob, your VP of sales is actually running his own company and competing with you. And I'm like, what? She goes, yeah. I go, but we're growing. She goes, yeah, I know, but every third order, he tells the customer we're not interested in the business. He sends it to another company, which he actually owns. I'm like, no, <laughs> come on. That would never happen to me. Bob loves me. And she's like, oh, you're such a nice guy. And so she leaves. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, she's an idiot. So I go in the office and bring Bob in. I'm like, you're not going to believe this story. I tell him the story and I look at him and he doesn't say anything. And I'm like, holy crap. And it was true. For a year, he was running a competing business and he he looks at me and he goes, well, you're going to find out eventually. Walks out the door, takes every one of our customers and takes three of my other employees and open and has already been opened up. And so what I what I learned out of that experience is it didn't jade me. I love my people, but what I learned was I had no way to measure. It, it it's good to love, it's good to trust, it's even better to know data. I wasn't even measuring the amount of inbound leads. He was literally Statistically, he was measuring the amount of leads that were coming in, and every third one, funneling it off to his own company. I had no idea how many leads were coming in. I would just look at the orders at the end of the month and say, well, you know, we were up this month over last month. We must be doing great. 
So what I learned out of that is knowing your data is really good. And that's the thing. I didn't understand the numbers in my business. And people, you know this, mm -hmm. people misunderstand that. They think, oh, I have to know everything. You have to know the data that tells you how well your business is doing. It's like a human being. You got to know your heart rate. You got to know, you know, if you get sick, what does a doctor do? He takes your temperature. He takes your pulse. What is the statistic that is the pulse of your business? And every business in this room is different. You know, for me, it's, it's a variety of different things because the business is so big now. You know, for you, it's different stuff. Somebody here who, who has a brand new startup, it's probably client acquisition. Right. Somebody that's in a service business, it's probably upsell rate from an existing customer. Like it's, you got to know what that pulse is and it's different for everybody. Did the situation with the, the guy, did it change the way you hire or did it change the way you look at employees? I know you said look at data more, but it, no. did it, did it you change know, it, it, trust? Well, it, it really made me pretty bitter um, for a little while. And then I kind of got to a point where I said, I, I will either let this situation jade me or I will get smarter about it and keep going. And I'm not a bitter guy. I'm not a... Uh, my expectation is that, you know, there's a great saying I have above my desk written in granite. And I have to give Mark Cuban credit for this. Because one time I said it to an audience, somebody in the audience knew Mark and called Mark and Mark calls me and goes, why are you using my quote? <laughs> and so he said this on the show and so I had it written in granite and it's above my desk and it says, every day somebody wakes up with the sole intention of kicking your ass. And I really believe that. And the bigger you get, the bigger the bullseye on your back. But... That doesn't mean I need to become bitter. doesn't mean I need to become jaded. I still hire people. I still have full faith in my employees. I, I love our team, but I know the data. Yeah. Can you talk about growing a business from, you know, from starting to hitting the first, you know, the seven figure to the eight to the nine? Can you talk yeah. about the difference? And I know you're going for, for the billion. So... How does each milestone change for you in the direction and the strategy of your business and growing? It's a great question. I'm curious to see what the crowd thinks too. You know, like, so I started my current business uh, 13 years ago, and we thought we were going to do $5 million in sales in the first year. We ended up doing 400000 Everything that could have gone wrong, including macro factors, went wrong. So we had to retool, repivot. And we ended up doing 400,000. It took us five years to get to 6.2 million in sales. This year we'll do 200 million. We started with two employees. We now have about 300. And so our next phase is we want to get to 500 million in the next 24 months. And we have a game plan to get there. Biggest difference? The stuff I'm willing to let go. It is... I am a absolute control freak. You know, I go to these seminars where people are like, you don't want to be a control freak. I'm like, that guy's never run a business. <laughs> you know, because I am, if you run a business, you better be a control freak. I want to run everything. But as you get bigger, there are certain things 
you have to be willing to let go, but still take the responsibility for them. So people misunderstand that. They say, oh, you know, when I, when I heard that first salesperson, I'm going to let sales go. No, you're still responsible for sales, but you have got to offload some of that responsibility. When you hire an accountant, I can't tell you how many small business owners I go up to and I go, how did you do last month? Like, oh, I don't really know. I wait for the statements. And I'm like, hey, just because you have an accountant, you, you better, you, if you wake me up at 2 o'clock in the morning and say, how's your month going? I'll tell you. I mean, I can't give you the, you know, the minutia, but I know how we're doing. I know where we're going. I know what the quarter is going to look like. And so it's being willing to let stuff go, which is really hard for me. You know, like when I first started the business, I remember this, I walked in one time and there was like four employees and I saw two staplers. I'm like, what the hell is going on? Who authorized <laughs> buying a second stapler? That's ridiculous. We can all share one stapler. Take that stapler back. You know, at 200 million, I accept the fact we have too many staplers. I accept the fact we're losing money as we speak, we're probably overspending on certain things and not spending enough on others. But, you know, the bigger the company gets, you, you have to be careful where you spend your time, what's more critical. And the people that you re touch every day need to become more critical to you. So I don't, I don't really run 300 employees. I mean, I don't really run anybody. I have a great team of people. On a daily basis, I probably interface with about seven people and that that's my core team so how do you how has your philosophy on leadership changed over the time too as you grow have you changed in i mean because when you're kind of a control freak it's more management versus leadership right you're kind of telling them what to do how yeah. have you evolved i i think i've always uh been a pretty good leader and not a very good manager okay so I think you, you've got to be, you know, I, I have this saying, I say the biggest lies in life that we tell are the ones we tell ourselves. So I've always been able to look in the mirror at myself and say, you know, before I look in the mirror, I always think that I'm Brad Pitt. When I look in the mirror, you know, when Robin Williams was alive, a lot of people used to mistake me for Robin Williams. And one time I met, and I used to think that was a real compliment. And then one time years ago, I was at an event and Robin Williams was doing a show and I was in the front row and I thought he was so funny and, you know, good looking from afar. And, and then we were leaving the show and, and the security guy comes and says, oh, Mr. Williams would like to see you backstage. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is so exciting. So I go backstage and he comes up to me and goes, you freaked me out so much. You look so much like me. He goes, can I get a picture with you? Because I want to send it to my mom. And I'm like, sure. <laughs> so I'm like, oh my God, I look like a famous movie star. And then I get next to him and I look at him and he's 12 years older than me. He's shorter than me. And he's the hairiest human being in the world. <laughs> and I'm like, holy crap, I'm not Brad Pitt. I'm Robin Williams. <laughs> and so you got to be honest with yourself. And I'm, I'm not a great manager. As the company's gotten bigger, I've had to learn how to manage. 
but I've always been pretty good at leadership because my life has been such hell. Just in the process of having to inspire myself every day, I've been pretty good at pulling other people along. What do you define as success? Like when you think of yourself as successful, you know, so many people would be a businessman, yeah. all this. What's, what is it to you? So my first definition of success was, and still is, is paying my rent. And however you define that. When I started out, it was literally paying my rent. Today, it's being able to have the company make a profit. If you can't pay your rent, you don't deserve the right to do anything else. And that's one thing my dad always taught me because my dad said, what are you going to do in life? I'm like, oh, I'm going to be a famous actor. I'm going to be on TV one day. Or I'm going to be a detective. Or I'm going to join the FBI. And he'd listen and he goes, it's all good. Rule number one, pay your rent. You can't pay your rent. I mean, that, you got to survive. In especially, no, no one is going to take care of you. And as you get older, you got to take care of your family. So while you may want to, you know, conquer the world and you may want to get a new office lease and you may want to buy a new house or you may want to take an MBA or you may not f be fulfilled in life or you may not be happy today. Those are all really interesting, but you got to pay your rent. Right. And, and so I think that that's been the first thing for me is always, what does that mean? And in our, in our business, it's we got to break even. If we're not breaking even and we're not making a dollar, we're not breathing. And then, you know, every business is a little different because we're not, you know, when you build, if you want to build a factory, you have to actually first build the factory. We're in a business where we can sell stuff and then build it. But that was, that was by design because I had no capital. I couldn't get into a business that required capital. Right? So that was another reality. I didn't want to go into the computer business. I wanted to go into the real estate business. And so I went with a friend of mine who was in real estate, and I said, how do I make money in real estate? He goes, you buy a lot of land and you develop it. I'm like, well, how do I do that? He goes, well, you have your grandfather come over here in the 50s and buy a lot of land. <laughs> I'm like, oh, that's, that's not me. And so I had to find a business that doesn't require capital to start. And that's why I love technology. Technology, you don't need capital. You just need a customer. You need a technology. You need something. How does it change from building your own, you know, um, the Hershevet Group, to now you're investing? I, the, uh, as a control freak, I cannot, and I've done this, I've invested and got burned, but you are giving your money to somebody and you right. say, here you go. I trust uh, you. I can't, you know, I only have so much control. How do you, it, how does it change? And how do you, as a control freak, handle that? Boy, Aaron, that's been really hard. <laughs> yeah. And I've had to let it go because it's not my business. I'm, I'm, I'm a good op. I'm a great operator. And I'm much more interested in running a business than I am investing in a business. I'm probably the only shark that way. The other sharks are much more, I mean, that's how they make a living. I'm the only guy on the panel that actually runs a business. On the, not that they can't, but that's what I do every day. And so at the beginning, it was really hard because I want to know what you were doing. What's going on? What are you going to do with it? Now I accept the fact it's your business. And I want updates. I want to know what's going on. 
And if I don't like where it's going, we're going to put a lot of pressure on you to go this way. But it's up to you. That's why it's so critical to invest in the right entrepreneur, right? Because a great leader can take a bad business and fix it. A bad leader can take a good business and run into the ground. So we always invest in the jockey. Okay. Interesting. Um, what would you say has been, as you're growing, um, you know, any, any things you wish you would have known looking back? Any, you know? Yeah. I, great question. <laughs> um, I, I, I did an interview for Wall Street Journal one time, and the theme of this story was, what would you have done different? And my whole thing always was nothing. There's nothing I would have done different. I'm a sum of all my mistakes. And, and the reporter's like, okay, you're not getting the story. The theme of the story <laughs> is what would you have done different? Give us something. And so I thought about it and I wish I would have believed that the sun was going to shine tomorrow. I am a bundle of fear and doubt and uncertainty and i used to live in constant fear of everything i couldn't talk to people i couldn't get up and do this i always thought oh my gosh if there's 20 things that could go wrong tomorrow all 20 are going to happen to me and so i had this sense of desperation to survive which is really good when you're starting but you have to have faith that the sun is going to shine tomorrow that it's going to work out and as i've gotten bigger i've gotten more of that you know for a long time with our current business i didn't think we were going to make it i used to literally every year and say gosh i hope we don't go away this year i hope we don't go and you know eventually you, gotta, you can't think that way anymore. You have to think, here's the goal, and we're definitely going to get there. And so what I do is I try to constantly push myself into different things because I never want to lose that sense of fear or hunger. I don't live in desperate fear anymore, but I constantly try to do things that scare the crap out of me. And, you know, I used to race cars, and people say, oh, you must love racing cars. And I'm like... I just crashed a car at 200 miles an hour and broke three ribs. That's scary. But in a weird way, it kind of really motivated me. It's like, I don't want to do that again. You know, it's one of the main reasons I did Dancing with the Stars. That worked out for you. The sun, shone on, <laughs> the sun was shining on that one. Yeah, but, but you know, I'd never danced. Right. When I first met, the way the show works is you have a celebrity and you have a professional partner. And my partner was Kim, and she was the world ballroom champion. And so I show up, and she's like, hey, welcome, blah, blah, blah. Show me how you dance. I'm like, I, I don't really dance. She's like, okay, okay. You're at home by yourself. The music comes on. How would you move? I'm like, I, I don't get the question. <laughs> I, I, I don't know where you're going with this. So that's how we started. Three, you have three weeks to learn the first dance. At the end of three weeks, I'm like, oh my God, I might be the best dancer that's ever been on this show. 
I don't know why Kim's been doing this since she was three, because it's easy. And then the day before the first show, you go to the studio, which you've never seen before. You walk in and you go, oh my God, there's a thousand people live. 15 million people watch at home. Producer comes out and says, oh, thank you very much for coming. And by the way, I want to remind you, this is a live show. You're like, oh, I get that. It's a live show. And he goes, what I mean by that is, if you fall down, the camera's on you. And you're like, holy crap, it's a live show. Because our show is not live. Shark Tank, we show up, we sit there, people come out. The average pitch in front of us is an hour and a half. And it's, we just ask questions. We know nothing about them. It gets edited into seven minutes when you watch at home. But there's no script. There's nothing. This was live. And so that was scary. Like that, you know, as, as somebody who doesn't do live TV, that was really scary. So it's good. You know, it's good to constantly push yourself and try things that make you a little... When you get really comfortable in life and you think... You know, you, and we all have those days, right? When you're kind of, you're driving to work and the sun is shining and you're in your new car and you're like, oh yeah, baby, I got this. You know something's going wrong. Like, and if you're that comfortable, it's the beginning of the end. You've always got to have that edge about you in order to grow. So what's scaring you currently or what's on the horizon of the pushing yourself? Anything? Yeah, you know, what, what's scary for us is now we're trying to go global. Um, we built the company to about $100 million in Canada. And to give you an idea, and we thought we were it. We're like, yeah, high five. You know, we're the big guys. And then we realized our closest competitor in Canada was $15 million a year. And so first we thought, oh, we are crushing those guys. And then we thought... Hang on a second. They're 15 million, we're 100. The gap is too big. And nobody bigger than us, all we do is security, and everybody bigger than us sold things we didn't care about. So I remember clearly this moment of like, yeah, we killed it to like, oh my God, we're going to go away. Like we've maxed out the market. The population of Canada and the GDP of Canada is roughly equal to 62% the state of California. Wow. And so three years ago, we did 1% of our sales outside of Canada. This year, it'll be 40%. So what's scary for us now is, is growing outside of our comfort zone. And what we've realized is, you know, for you to grow your business outside of Plano or to grow it outside of Texas, rule number one is you actually have to go there. Because we just assumed, well, you know, if we're great at what we do, won't the Americans just call us? <laughs> <laughs> you know, won't people just beat a path to our door? What do you mean we have to go out and find people? And so now we're growing in the States, in England. We're looking to buy a company in Dubai, all that kind of stuff. That's great. All right, well, I know uh, we have a lot of questions in the audience. Um, I have an extra mic up here if you guys need one. I saw him running around looking for it. Yeah. So, anyone with questions for Robert? I'm assuming JJ. Yes, sir. Oh, go ahead. Right here. Here. 
We can hear you. Yeah. Go ahead. We, we'll repeat the question. Thank you, Robert. For Thank you, Robert, for taking my question. I'm actually a very big fan of yours. Thank you. On Shark Tank. I watch it every time. Uh, when you talk about growing your business and actually going out there, so uh, the business I'm in is actually baby products. Is what? Baby products. Baby products. And okay. we're looking to develop and manufacture here. And we've reached the point where we've gotten all our costs, design, everything is in line. But when you say talking about actually going there, so for example, I know the demand for baby products being in the U.S., made in the U.S. is actually increasing. So like I know now Chinese moms want made in America products. Right. Uh, similarly, you know, going to Europe, do you actually physically have to go there for a product like ours? So that's a great question. So, so a couple of things, and, and keep in mind, all I know about your business is what you've told me. So if I'm telling you something that's, you know, we always tell people, we know everything, but we really know nothing, right? Because people come out and they give us the information. We know nothing about the businesses. We literally know nothing. We don't even know their names. So a couple of things. You're right. The biggest change in business today is because the power of the internet, you don't physically have to be there. So being there doesn't necessarily physically mean there but you have to have a brand or a marketing presence. If you're not marketing to that region, you can't sell into that region. What I mean by that is, I used to think that the world, if I'm great at what I do, the world will be the path to my door. And I'll never forget, Joan Rivers one time said to me, uh, I did this show with Joan Rivers, and I was like, oh, you know, we're great at what we do. She goes, well, how do you get customers? And I'm like, oh, you know, people, people just find us. She's like, you're an idiot. <laughs> she goes, you know, there is no such thing as people finding you. You know who says that? People that don't know anything about business. You've got to go out and tell the world. I used to think that as long as you're great, you'll be found. What I realize now is there is no such thing as genius in the darkness of a basement. If the world doesn't know about you, they're not going to find you. And so that, you've got to be there in that sense. You know, but you can market to people in different regions. You can go find them. Um, you know, the only caution I will give you is, it's good to know the macro factors of an industry. You know, baby products are growing. Moms want this. But be careful about taking macro data and applying it to a micro subset. So if you don't have sales and you've done $150,000 in sales last year and you're trying to get to 300, you know what? The macro factor really isn't relevant because you're so insignificant that the macro, you can grow from 150,000 to a million in any industry. You can grow in a declining industry. The macro factors are kind of irrelevant. It's one of the things we see on the show, people that come out and give us the macro numbers, our eyes roll right away. We're like, oh my God, here we go. People come out and say, you know, you should invest in me because I, I'm in a part of a $10 billion industry that's growing by 30%. And we're like, who cares? Tell me how you're growing and how you're going to capture market share. So my question is always, okay, well, that's all very interesting. Don't care. How are you going to go from 150000 
to 300,000. Like, how are you actually going to do that? How many salespeople did you have to get to 150? How much ad spend did you have to spend on Facebook? And so to get to 300, what are you going to do different? Like, what are the levers you're going to pull in order to get there? The other big thing we always see on the show is people come out and say, uh, my sales are 600,000. I'm like, great, what are your sales going to be next year? They're like, 50 million. <laughs> like, okay, that's really great, and I'm sure that's happened. But, you know, the question we always say is, name me a company that's grown from that to that. And so, how long did it take Oracle? Everybody's heard of Oracle, right? Or Microsoft. How long did it take Microsoft to get to 50 million in sales? What do you guys think? 12 years. Took Oracle, I think, uh, nine or 13, I forget. People always overestimate growth. And that's the downside of media today. You know, all of my son's friends want to be billionaires. You know, all of them have a business idea that's going to get them to a billion. And so I say to them, how much is a billion dollars? They're like, oh, it, you know, it's good. <laughs> it's a lot. <laughs> I'm like, well, how much do you think it is? Like, like related to something, and they're like, I don't know. You know, the Snapchat guys got offered three and a half billion. They turned it down. Now they're worth 20 billion. I'm like, no, 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 I get that. But how much is a billion dollars? And so I say to them, you know, a billion dollars, you could have spent $10,000 a day from the day Christ was born. That's a lot of money. And part of the downside is because the media sensationalizes that people think it's easy to grow. People think you can start a business, go from 300,000 to 5 million to 50 million to 200 million. And there are industries that do it, but before you tell me how you're gonna go from 150,000 to 50 million, tell me how you're gonna go to 300,000. Just figure that out. Because if you can get there, you'll get to the next one. And it's those rungs of growth, as you know, that, that people don't want to think about. All right, another question. Yes, ma'am. Uh, oh, sorry. Wait a, no, Did sorry. I, sorry, Aaron, I screwed no, it up. No, you're fine, you're fine. <laughs> I don't know where the mic is. JJ's running. All right, we'll go over here well, on the next after her. Okay, yeah. sorry. So the question is, I understand about growing a business, founding a business. When is the optimum time? I know a lot of times you look at like the bell curve of a, of a business. And when is the optimum time to sell your business both uh, financially and emotionally? Wow, that's a great yeah, question. So I just had a conversation with somebody because I just had an offer to sell my business. Um, we're in a very hot space, so people come along and, and so... Um, Mark and I literally just had this conversation about a week and a half ago. Um, here's my general view. It goes back to pay your rent. Rule number one is if the money will change your life, you should probably sell your business. So I sold my first business and I loved my business. I loved my business. I was never going to sell my business. But you know, I sold the, the first business for $32 million and we had no money. We lived in a house, we had a big mortgage, we had no savings. 
Um, I couldn't afford a new car. You know, my ex-wife at the time would always say, if we're doing so well and the business is growing, why am I driving a 10-year-old car? I'm like, oh, you don't understand business and cash flow and all that kind of stuff. You know, you don't get it. But we had no money. Every penny we had went into the business. And so somebody came along and offered me $32 million in cash. And what I realized was, my kids are never going to have to think about making a living again. I will never have to worry about making a living. If the money fundamentally alters your life, then you should, you should really think about it. So that, that's rule number one. And I'm not a very money-oriented guy. I'm a very success-oriented guy. But it kind of goes back to, you know, you got you to have a certain amount of money for the rainy days. So that's rule number one. Rule number two is, do you think you've maxed out the growth of the business? Am I, do I see more growth or do I see decline? Rule number three is, even if I see growth, do I have the capacity to grow? You may see growth in your business, but in order to grow, you've got to build another factory, let's say. And it's going to cost a million dollars to build that. But you don't have the money, you can't raise the money, and the bank won't give it to you. So, yeah, there's potential growth, but with my current situation, I can't get there. So there's no point going after an opportunity that you can't realize. And then, you know, the final one is you just don't want to do it anymore. Like business is a business is not a feely, fluffy, kumbaya, let's all go hold hands and sing a song kind of thing. Business is full on combat. Business is, you know, in my industry, every time I win a deal, somebody lost. I'm not in a zero-sum game. I didn't create the iPhone. You know, for me to, you know, for Apple to sell more iPhones, they're not really hurting somebody. They're just increasing the market share. For me to get a deal from a customer, that customer has to make a conscious decision to not go with somebody else. For me to win, someone has to lose. And I like to compete. I'm a highly competitive guy, so I like doing it. But, you know, frankly, in my first business, I just got tired. I didn't want to do it anymore. I didn't want to work that hard. I thought I was burnt out, and I probably was for a lot of different issues. And it was time to sell. So that, that's kind of my general rule of thumb of uh, of when to sell. All right, we'll go over here. There's one over here. Um, it is very common for all the entrepreneurs to build a great business plan. But sometimes it's like a strategy. So when you're building your businesses, what is more important, the business plan or the strategy? I really don't give a crap about a business plan. The only time I've ever written a business plan was about a month ago. And I only did it because I wanted to borrow $30 million from the bank to buy a business, and they wouldn't give it to me without a business plan. <laughs> so I'm like, damn, I got to write a business plan. So I literally went online, 
found a template for a business plan. <laughs> That's awesome. Gave it, gave it to my VP of business development. I said, here, fill some numbers in and blah, 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 so we can give it to the bank. Um, now, as we get bigger, we need more. So I'm not a big fan of business plans, but I'm in a world where the timeframes are very condensed. In tech, a long-term plan is three years. I can tell you what my plan is for next quarter, pretty clear what the rest of the year is. I have a general view what I think 2018 is going to look like. 2019 is some mystical day out there. But that's my field. You know, if I was in a widget making business, maybe the, there's more of a long-term certainty to it. Uh, so, but don't mistake, because we don't have a business plan, as we get bigger, we're really big on budgeting and forecasting and stuff like that, right? The bigger your company, the best analogy somebody ever told me is, I don't know if anybody here is a boater. So I love boats. I love everything that goes fast and mechanical. And, and the only thing I'm really arrogant about is I think I can control any mechanical thing. I'm like, oh, come on, I can drive that. So I want to get into boats. So I bought a 12-foot boat, and the guy's like, do you have a boating license? I'm like, ah, come on. So I, I had him put it in the water, and I just drifted out and learned how to run a boat. So I started with a 12-foot boat, and I ended up with a 68-foot boat, which is the largest boat you're allowed to own with a, without a commercial captain's license. And I never got my uh, boating license anywhere along the way. I just figured it out. Here's the biggest difference between a 12-foot boat and a 68-foot boat. When you're dock, because when you're running it out in the ocean, it's really not that much different. It's when you're docking. When you're docking a 12-foot boat, you just kind of drive it in, and if you're wrong, you put your hand out, and you push off the dock. <laughs> that was my strategy. People are like, well, how, where are you going to dock? I'm like, ah, I'm just going to go into the slip, and if it's wrong, I'll just push my way around. When you're running a 68-foot boat and you put your hand out, you're going to break your hand. And you have to actually think way before you're in the marina, which slip you're going in, am I going in backwards, forwards, where's the wind coming from, what's the current? 12-foot boat, you just drive that baby in and push off. And so we really, at a $200 million size, we really have to understand what next quarter is going to look like, what the forecast is, because we need to know how much cash we're going to need. We need to know what our receivables are. I, you know, we monitor every Friday. I get a report. We call it a GP backlog report. Tells me my sales for the week, my gross profit for the week, what's on the backlog, the amount of receivables, the average turnover, the payables, the amount of money in the bank, and an actual copy of the bank online statement. Love my people, trust them, but I want to see the bank statement. And, you know, to this day, I still sign every check in my company above $2,500. Wow. Every check. And that comes from, listen to me dropping names. Uh, I met Oprah one time. I was at this golf resort, and I'm driving around in the golf cart, and the guy, you know, the guy at the hotel is like, hey. Oprah's at the resort. I'm like, oh my God, I love Oprah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, I'm sure I'm going to meet her. So I go to the fancy restaurant. I'm like, is Oprah here? 
And, you know, we're there for like a week. I don't see her. Last day, I'm driving, I'm playing golf, starts pouring rain. I'm driving back to the clubhouse. I'm by myself, and there's this woman walking by, and she's drenched. So I pull up to her, and I'm like, hey, do you want to ride? She's like, sure. She hops on, and we're driving, and we're talking. I'm like, oh, my God, I think it's Oprah. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, it's not Oprah on TV with the wig. It's Oprah with wet hair. (laughs) No makeup. And I'm like, is it Oprah? Is it not Oprah? I don't want to say, hey, are you Oprah? (laughs) So I'm like, how do I ask? How do I ask? And she had just written a book about running or something. So I lean over and I go, just wanted to let you know, because I'm trying to act really cool. (laughs) I said, hey, just wanted to let you know, really enjoyed your last book. She looks at me, she goes, oh my gosh, thank you so much. What was your favorite chapter? (laughs) And I had actually read the book, and so I said, chapter 12, you talk about, you know, don't try to run a marathon after two glasses of red wine. And she's like, oh, I love that, blah, blah. Anyway, I give her a ride to the thing, and I say, give me a piece of advice for running a business. She goes, I'll give you the best piece of advice somebody gave me in my life. Always sign your own checks. So Oprah, to this day, still signs every check in her company above $10,000. Because you know what it is? It's that final stop. It's that final governor. Somebody could have given a bad purchase order. Somebody could be buying stuff I don't want to... I may not know about it. But when that check hits my desk, and I see a check for $3,800 for X. I go, what's X? Why are we spending this money? Who approved this? Where's the capital requisite? It, you know, rule, the golden rule. He with the money makes the rules. As long as the money's with me, I can always change the order. I can always go back and I always negotiate. So I'm, again, control freak, right? Is it a Virgo thing? I don't know. It must be a Virgo thing, yeah. (laughs) Uh, JJ, you want one more? One or two more questions. Look at all the business questions. This is great. Um, Hi, how are you? I'm wonderful. Um, So my question is, uh, for those of us who have retail product businesses, the biggest thing... I've seen personally is in the past two years is a lot of stuff is tanked because everything's gone online. You've got a lot of retail stores closing, things like that. So biggest trend we see on our show too, by the way, not to cut you off is we used to see people that came on our show that had a retail oriented product and wanted to get into retail. Now we see that rarely and we see a lot of people that used to go to retail go Instagram or go online purely to sell their products. So that's what my, my question is, is having to change your entire model of, or like mine personally of operation is what is the most cost effective or smartest marketing strategy to get your brand out there when your normal channels are closing business or, you know, right. I, what I've learned, cause I'm not a retail guy, but i been forced. So when Shark Tank first started, nobody thought the show would work. Show runs in 40 countries. And in every country, little hidden secret, the sharks, they're called dragons in other countries. So Kevin, the mean bald guy and I, 
we used to do the show in Canada. And in Canada, we would all bet who would lose the least amount of money every year. The investments never made any money. We get to the States, we start doing the show, we try to invest in things we understand, and what happens very quickly is we realize the power of the show at a consumer brand level. And so we say, you know what, we're going to start investing in stuff that consumers are going to buy. So we become pretty good at retail. What I've learned is retail is actually, as, as I'm sure a lot of people here know, it's very difficult. You have to buy inventory. You have to buy it ahead of time. The lead times, I mean, all those, and they may not pay you. And the bigger the retailer, you know what they want? Longer credit terms. And you know what they want every year? A lower price. And then they want returns, and they want marketing co-op, and so on. The trend we've seen over the last few years is online, pure online businesses who almost use retail to support their online brand. They use it just as another distribution method for the power of the online brand. But the really successful ones are the ones that have learned to scale online without paid. Because it, you, know, you can only buy so many Facebook ads, you can only buy so much. What we've really seen is people that can capture a user community and convert them into salespeople for them. That's the biggest trend we've seen is people that can get you to buy something because they saw you on Instagram and then convert you into an ambassador or a sales rep for free. So we had these, uh, I don't know if it's aired yet, it probably has, but we had these kids come on the show this year and they come out and I'm like, what's the business? And they're like, we make beach towels. I'm like, well, do you have a, do you have them? And they show us the beach towels and they're really crappy. Like, you know, to me, a beach towel is thick and it dries you off. This is this really thin material, but it's kind of cool. I'm like, oh, this is really not very good. And what's your game plan? He says, oh, you know, we take pretty Instagram pictures and we get people to buy our product. And it's so beautiful. A lot of college kids buy them and actually don't use them as towels. They put them up in the dorm and we encourage them to take a picture of that and post it. And then we give them $25 off the next one they buy. And we give 10% of all the money we make to help seals in San Diego because we really believe in the ocean. I've just explained to you the entire business. That's it. it, it there's no more nuance. There's, it doesn't get more complicated than that. All of us are out. We're thinking this is the stupidest thing we've heard. Then I find out they did 2.2 million in sales their first year. So I invested in them because there were three kids out of school. They hit lightning. You know, sometimes it's good to hit lightning, even though you don't know you get hit by lightning. So I like them. I invest in them, helping them a lot. And we're going to do seven and a half million dollars the second year. But the whole strategy for them is they have a cool, they understand what their brand is. They're actually not selling a beach towel. They're selling an experience. They're, that's what they're selling. And, and college kids don't buy the towel. They buy because it it's cool. It's hip to have a sand cloud. 
I don't get it, but a lot of other people do. And so that's the biggest trend, and it's good and bad. You know, I, I think that for sure retail is going to get tougher. The margins are definitely going to get lower, and the payment terms are going to get longer. And so how do you adjust for that? One more? One sure, more? yeah. All right, let's go over here. Christina. Do you, do you have any recommendations uh, for those of us that are that have a business that's more uh, service-based? So um, I'm a business attorney, so to grow, uh, I'm going to have to be there more and have to be with clients more, and that's going to be me. But how, how would you suggest growing a business like that? How many people here have a services-oriented business? And so in your service business, is it a service that you perform or can you hire others to perform that service? In other words, let's say you had a pet sitting service. Do you actually do the service or do you have other people doing it? What's the typical? Should be others. Others or both. Okay. <clears throat> service businesses are really hard. When I started my company, I wanted to run a consulting business. And so we started out in my old company as a consulting business. And I loved it because I was able to charge a lot per hour. And so I remember I went out and somebody paid me $300 an hour for my time. I'm like, oh my God, yeah, this is great. Then I hired one more guy and I charged him out at $150 an hour. I'm like, this is great. Then I said, I want to double the business. And I realized, oh, every time I double the business, I need more people. And the challenge with a service, with a pure place service business is your revenue grows in direct proportion to your cost. So it becomes really important to understand what the margin is between those two things. What I always try to find in every business is when do you reach the tipping point where your costs don't grow in direct proportion to your revenue? Because if your game plan is you're in a journey, you charge X dollars per hour, you want to double your sales, you have to hire a second attorney. Well, then you got to pay that attorney. Is there a way that you could grow the business to this tipping point where revenues will keep increasing, but your costs will begin to flatline? Because if, if the two lines are always growing like this, it's going to become very difficult to get rich. Rich happens in the separation between revenue and cost. And rich happens when you can separate those two on a different trajectory. That, that's how you create real wealth. And by the way, when, how do you sell your business for a lot of money? It's how predictable that separation is and how much farther out it is and how big it is. Service, business, service businesses rarely sell for very high multiples because they're very people-based. You know, if I buy your company, you have 20 consultants. Well, if I buy your company and 18 of the consultants leave tomorrow, what, 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 what am I buying? If I buy your company, you have 20 consultants, but the bulk of your revenue is from an online app or it's from some kind of a recurring contract that people buy over three years or something, that business is worth 
far more than it is for a business that, you know, I'm going to pay a multiple of EBITDA. And, you know, in terms of evaluation of a business, people always think that businesses get sold for revenue. Very, very rare. Businesses typically get sold for multiples of EBITDA, which is earnings, how much money the business earns. And the average buyer pays for how long it takes me to recover the money I'm going to give you, and then everything gets built up from there. The more predictive your business, the more guaranteed recurring revenue you have, the more it's worth. And so when we started our business, we were consulting, and we realized, yeah, this is great, but this line is happening, and we're never going to sell the business for a lot of money because we're not really creating value. We're building a consulting business. And that's okay. Some businesses are, that's the nature of the business. If, if you're a vet and that's your business, you can only make X amount of dollars based on the amount of animals you see. If you want to get really wealthy as a vet, you better open up a bunch of vet clinics to hire other vets. I mean, it's just the nature of it. So we built a recurring revenue model in our business. And today, if somebody buys our business, whether I show up at work tomorrow or anybody shows up, we're going to do X millions the following year. And so a large buyer looks at that. And I mean, there's other reasons, you know, sometimes people buy you because they want market share or other things. But in general, consulting businesses are tough. Great way to make a living when you're starting out. But you know, it's, it, it, it depends where you are on your life uh, plan also. When you're starting out and you have no money, consulting businesses are great. As you get older and you have a little bit of money and you want to think about great wealth, consulting businesses are challenging unless you can find a way to corral a bunch of other consultants to work for you and pay them a flat rate and increase the top line revenue. That is, if there's anything worth this whole day, that advice right there of figuring out how to get out of that path. But it's, isn't it true? It's so true. It's just a genius way to look at it because it's absolutely That's right, Aaron. I'm a genius. You are a genius. Yes. You look like Brad Pitt and you are uh, a genius. Now you're just sucking up to me and I love it. <laughs> Robert, thank you so oh, much. Oh, thank you this so much. Yeah. absolutely amazing. Thank you for having thank me. You.